You are listening to The Partner Podcast, relevant information to enhance the careers and improve the lives of partner-level attorneys. Produced by The Attorney Search Group, we grow law firms and accelerate attorney careers. Visit us on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com. Brian Cuban, the brother of Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, is an attorney, author, and recovery advocate. His second book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, is already an Amazon number one bestseller in pre-order. Brian has spoken at conferences, nonprofit events, colleges, and universities across the United States and in Canada. Brian has appeared on prestigious talk shows, such as The Katie Couric Show, as well as numerous media outlets across the country. He also writes extensively on those subjects. His columns have appeared on CNN.com, FoxNews.com, The Huffington Post, and in online and print newspapers around the world. So I've got with me on the show today, Brian Cuban, and Brian is going to talk about a significant and an important topic, it's addiction in the legal profession. Brian, I'm excited to have you on our show today. I'm excited to be on, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. I'd seen you speak a few months ago at a conference, and I was touched by your story and the impact that it has and its relevance in today's legal world. So maybe you can kind of give us an overview of who you are, where you've come from, and then we can talk more specifically about other elements of this topic of addiction. Sure. I'm a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. I'm licensed to practice in Texas. I'm in long-term recovery from both alcohol and cocaine addiction. I had 12 years in recovery, April 8th of this year, so not too long ago. I've also dealt with two different eating disorders, both bulimia and an eating disorder called exercise bulimia, dealing with clinical depression as well. Been uh, to a psychiatric facility twice, the first time after a near suicide attempt, and was finally able to turn things around and find recovery and uh, change my life. That's great. What was the key inflection point for you where you were able to change your life around? It was after a drug and alcohol-induced blackout Easter weekend 2007, at which time my, at that time, girlfriend, now my wife, she stood by me, which was great, Mm. uh, came home from a trip and found me passed out. Uh, in bed, and she did not know I was suffering through all these issues. She had actually just moved in with me, and we had been dating maybe over a year, and we went to the psychiatric facility, and I was standing in the parking lot of that psychiatric facility, and I realized that there wouldn't be a third trip back. I'd be dead. I thought she was going to leave. I'd leave, but she stood by me, and we dated for over a decade while I found recovery, and now I've been married over a year and a half relationships can withstand these things. They won't always, but they can. But I had to do the work, the recovery work and rebuild the broken trust and all that. And Scott, standing in that parking lot, I also thought of something my father said to myself and my two brothers, Mark and Jeff, growing up. And he would joke and he'd say, well, it's come and go and girlfriends come and go. But when push comes to shove, all you have is each other. So no matter where you go in life, no matter what happens, you pick up that phone and you ask your, you make sure your brother's okay. My father was the middle of three boys, so he understood that bond of family, the bond of brothers, and I am the middle. And so I thought about that, and I realized that I was going to not necessarily lose my family because they were still love me, but families distance and families get frustrated. And I realized I was on that precipice of having that happen where 
there would be no communication. And, mm. and that closeness and that fear of losing that was really what drove me towards recovery. And if you want to know how much that bond meant to me, all these decades later, 1,200 miles from growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my two brothers and I live walking distance to each other. And until my father passed away July of last year, he lived across the street from me. And I don't mm. mean metaphorically across the street. I mean across the street. I walked over and would see him. And it was that, those things that really finally got me thinking, you know what? There has to be something better in my life. Right. Because I was somebody who looked in the mirror at that point in time and for my entire life had hated what he saw. Mm. And so the next day I walked into 12 step and began the journey in 12 step. I began getting honest with my therapist who I'd been seeing for a couple of years. Well, why would you lie to your therapist? Well, shame knows no hourly rates. I was ashamed of and too ashamed to tell him anything, too ashamed to allow myself to be vulnerable, even in a safe setting, which is one issue I see with a lot of lawyers I talk to. Well, I really appreciate your transparency with this, Brian, and I'm, I'm glad that you had a good support group that helped you to transition into a healthier state. And I know I know one thing with certainty is that we all have our own demons. Everybody has that. Nobody has their act together. Everybody's going to go through a challenge. Uh, this is one thing I've seen in my role as a recruiter dealing with partners is just the stress is unreal, the pressures that they feel every day. And I don't know how a lot of them can hold it all together. And you've been in that role and you can identify with that. But what, what do you think are some of the trends or some of the other the data related to this? What do you see within the legal landscape related to addiction? Well, I think a lot of lawyers, although surprisingly a lot of them are not familiar with the Betty Ford ABA, the ABA Betty Ford Hazelton study, which found that 20, 21% of licensed attorney are considered problem drinkers, or as we would know it, alcoholics. You have similar rates of depression. We have the fourth highest suicide rate out of profession. So the data wow. is disturbing. To put it into context, Scott, I read an article on CNN, and they talked about a U.S. problem drinking rate, and it was somewhere in the area of 115 to 12.5%. They called that a crisis, a crisis. We are over 20%. If you are a millennial age lawyer, it goes over 30%, one in three. So if that's a crisis, what are we? In the legal profession, we are beyond crisis. We have a problem that needs to be dealt with. And Do you here think in Texas, issue? when you talk about depression, we just lost another lawyer to, to suicide. It, it, right. It's very sad. It is. And that's a story that's all too common. It's all too frequent that you read about in the legal media. Do you think it's an issue of, well, I'm sure it can't be the profession itself. I, I know it's a pressure situation. Is it an issue of uh, how one sees themselves as a person? Is it an issue of being able to manage the various stresses of life? What do you think the reasons are that cause this? Is it, is it a cultural thing? Well, let's be careful when we talk about cause. I, when people say cause, I'm always, I make a point to uh, correct. We don't know. There is no one cause, right? What we know yeah. about are triggers and things that can correlate with problems. Yes, stress is one thing. It could be depend on a person's upbringing. It can depend on the trauma a person has dealt with in life. When it, whether it's a partner or an associate or whoever it is, a solo practitioner, when 
somebody is struggling and we notice someone struggling, what we're really looking at is the end result of a life story. We don't know the life story. If you don't know the life story, that makes it difficult to say, hey, maybe you should do this or maybe you should do that, right? Right. I have spoken to lawyers who have been physically abused, and I'm not saying everyone goes through this, but everyone has suffered some type of trauma in their life. Are they dealing with it or have they packed it away like baggage to never open up, but they carry it with them? Like old luggage you can never get rid of, right? Sure. So I talk to men and women all the time who have all of this baggage that they have brought to the firm, their partners, their associates, and they never dealt with it. They compartmentalize it and, uh, and they tell themselves they have. And that is a very difficult way to live because that baggage is just waiting to get out. And another analogy I use for me, that baggage was like this huge semi-tractor tire that I was dragging around on a chain my entire life over this gravel road that I couldn't cut loose with a little boy on it who was hurt and who needed to heal from trauma of my childhood. Mm. And it is easier to compartmentalize that than say, you know what, maybe I need to tear back the layers of my life, tear back that onion and deal with it. And what happens when we peel an onion? There's a lot of crying. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. Who wants to do that? As a profession, we in general are trained to take advantage of vulnerability, not to explore our own. Exploring our own is weakness. Exploring our own is very stigmatized. Exploring our own could lead to the loss of a client. These are the things we tell ourselves. Could lead to not making partner. Could lead to being marginalized within the firm. Could lead to divorce. Could lead to being ostracized by my children. All these different wow. things we tell ourselves as a reason not to feel. And do you think then that that addiction cycle exacerbates once people start going through peeling off the layers of the onion skin and they see the pain there and they try to continue to keep from feeling it so it makes that worsen? Well, when you try to keep from feeling, what do you do? Well, what's the easiest way to keep from feeling? Self-medicate. When I speak in, and this isn't about lawyers, but you go and you speak to a high school and you say, what feeling are you trying to deaden? What feeling was I trying to deaden with alcohol, with cocaine? A lot of it probably, for me, it went back years. And every situation is going to be different. But when we keep the baggage packed away and we don't want to allow ourselves to feel Whenever those feelings start to bubble out because stress triggers it or this triggers it, something at home triggers it, it could become very easy to take an extra drink and then an extra drink and then an extra drink. And depending what the genetics are, what the life situation is, the next thing you know, you're from a, okay, social drinker, moderate drinker, now you're a problem drinker. Or you're using cocaine or you're using opioids. I know lawyers who have struggled with heroin. I have known lawyers who have struggled with pills. I have known lawyers who have struggled with just about with meth, with about everything under the sun, wrapped around not wanting to feel. So on your website, I love your quote, and maybe you could talk about that. Uh, Trauma and shame are gatekeepers to happiness. What does that mean exactly? It means that everyone has some trauma in their life. Everyone. 
it may not be my trauma. It may not be your trauma, right? But everyone has some level of trauma that they haven't dealt with. And so why don't we deal with it? There are different reasons, but anecdotally, I can tell you, and I think uh, someone like Brene Brown would agree with me on this, that uh, shame is a lot of the reason we don't deal with it. We are ashamed. If people find out I have a, an alcohol issue, they're going to be ashamed of me. I'm ashamed of myself when I look in the mirror. And dealing with that, dealing with those two things, in my opinion, the linchpin to liberating ourselves to be able to experience healthy emotions. And when we are able to experience emotions in a healthy way, that leads to being able to function at work in a healthier way, in my opinion. So let's just say there's a partner out there listening to this, and he or she knows that their behavior is indicative of a problem. And they know that if they were found out, it could weaken their cachet within the firm. It might even jeopardize their own career, but they want to deal with it. They want to manage it in a healthy way. They want to resolve it. They want to get healthy again. What would you recommend that person do? What are the first action steps you think they should do? And what do you think they should expect? as they go through that growth? Well, the first thing I'll ask anyone is what, you, what are you prepared to do, right? Because you're going to get an answer for some that says, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to treatment because then everyone knows. I had one lawyer tell me that, and I'll use a general pronoun, that person was not going to go to 12-step and, and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is the most well-known alcohol-focused 12-step, but there are others. There's NA, there is Celebrate Recovery, which is religion-based. Said, I'm not going to 12-step because somebody, I try cases and somebody might in the, in the jury pool might be in my 12-step group and recognize me. So I have heard all different reasons, all different things of what people are not willing to do to recover. So that's the first thing I ask them. What are you willing to do? Because if you've pinholed yourself in, into, well, when we do this, it may come down to somebody not really being ready. So that's the first thing I ask. What are you willing to do? And that tells me what paths I can lay for them. Are you willing to call your lawyer's assistance program? Well, I'm not going to call my lawyer's assistance program that they know. That, that everyone will know. Well, that's not true, but I'm not going to convince a partner of that, right? It's completely confidential. Would you call your employee's assistance program? I'm not going to call my employee's assistance program. They'll know. Everyone will know. What are you willing to do? And so that's the first thing I need to know. So it, it's going to vary very differently based on each, based on the partner. And here are a couple things I try to get out to them. Look, mm -hmm. this is cumulative. Okay, you are getting by, but there is going to be a time where the consequences catch up to the issue. It may not be now. It may not be next month. But why do you want to wait for that? I can point you to so many cases. Open the back of your bar journal of all the people who said the exact same thing you did to yourself. I'm getting by. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. So I'm not willing to do this or that, even though I know I have an issue. I'm high functioning. I'm high functioning. That's what we tell ourselves. Right. Well, just open the back of that bar journal and you're going to find a lot of lawyers who told themselves that same thing, who are now suspended, disbarred, publicly censured, who no longer can get malpractice, who no longer could be insured because of malpractice. Open up that book and check it out. A lot of them said the same thing. 
And there's no such thing as a high-functioning lawyer who is not in recovery. There is what I call the Peter Principle of Recovery, Scott. Mm -hmm. What happens is that the level of incompetence keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. And what happens is the lawyer who is struggling keeps redefining their definition of high-functioning, of getting the work done right. They keep dropping lower and lower and lower to fit under that threshold and tell themselves they're doing great. And that drop may be imperceptible at first. It may be just tiny increments. But I'll tell you what, people are seeing it. We convince ourselves that no one's seeing it. Oh, I told myself that all the time. No, no one notices. I'm doing great. In the meantime, everyone's talking about Brian. So let's say we see and a colleague. drop off a cliff and it's too late. Right. Let's or say we see a colleague. Work, professionally, you, get, you kill somebody in an auto accident. So let me ask you this, Brian. Let's say you see a colleague of yours that has a problem. What would you recommend that you do to support that partner and help that partner get better? If I see someone that has a problem, first thing I'm going to do is not judge them. I am going to ask them in a very non, I'm going to let them know in a very non-judgmental way, in a way that I would let anyone know, not just a partner. You seem to be struggling. Is there anything I can do? I'm here for you if you want to talk. And then assuming there's no conduct, okay, if they're not ready, they're not ready. But I have what I call the two ask rule, and I let them know again before the conversation looks. Look, just remember, if you want to talk, you know you can come to me, right? And at first, I'm going to leave it with that, assuming there is no conduct, okay? If there's conduct, that, that triggers ethical obligation. And that's a whole right. other conversation, whether you know lawyers who ignore their ethical obligations because they're afraid of stepping outside their comfort zone. But this is what I tell people. The two ask rule is so easy to start with. The only thing you have to do is step outside your comfort zone and use empathy. That's the way I start every conversation where I am concerned. And then if the person says, I'm fine, okay. And then I hope I am one in a series of cumulative touch points where they're thinking about it or someone else has said something. I've had people come to me and say, Brian, I wasn't ready then, but I appreciate what you said. And now I'm in recovery. So you're setting up, you're putting a mindset out there as well, if that makes sense. You know, I think your whole platform and all the advice that you share and what you're sharing right now, that's so impacting, Brian. I'm curious, just in looking at your website, it looks like you've done a lot of speaking. Maybe you can kind of give an overview. What are, what are the things that you've done? What are the ways that you can help people listening to this podcast? And in terms of, of audiences, what's the ideal type of audience for you to get in front of? To bring your message uh, I've to spoken, I've spoken in so many different in front of so many different audiences all over the country and in Canada, Scott, uh, from eating disorder to uh, obviously most recently a lot of legal function. I have four major law firms coming up over the next two months uh, speaking at their firms, and then they're simulcasting it to other branch offices, uh, telling my story. I speak at bar association events. I speak at a lot of law schools around the country. So I'm always sharing my story. I'm certainly not the guy who goes in and says, here's how you reduce your malpractice insurance, or you know, here's how you get that partner in a recovery. I'm that guy who goes in and, and tells a story, and through the power of storing, lets storytelling tries to connect with people on multiple levels, on the child level, on the teenage level, on the adult level, because every lawyer has that child in them, that teenager in them, and they're an adult. 
And they've right. all gone through different things that they may not want to explore. That's what I try to do. You know, I think you're on to something in terms of value that firms can offer to their partners and, and their associates and their staff. Because the way I've seen a lot of firms, they want to look good on the outside. And if there's any chink in the armor, if there's any blemish, it's going to reduce their potency as a solution to their clients' problems. It's going to weaken Absolutely. them. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm perfectly honest here calling it what it is because right. in, in admitting that I have nothing to say, well, you're right. I have nothing to lose. Okay. I'm not at a firm. I don't have to worry that if I tell my story that I'm going to lose a client, I'm going to you know, not make partner. I, I get that. But right, right. I'm not trying to convince anyone to do anything. I'm just trying to con- get people to explore who they are and, and I come think to that's, their own decisions about what they should do. That's absolutely right. And I think the whole, the whole stigma, I think, can change over time as firms realize that the transparency and the real trust that partners need to have when saying, I've got an issue, I want to I get healthy, and trusting them to do that, I think that's critical. And I think that can actually bond them together as they go through that, Absolutely. the way you, you described with your close relationships. And, and I always say, I've had conflict with clients, and I'll tell some of my industry colleagues that I had conflict. Well, how did it resolve? Well, I actually grew closer to my client because of that. It's the same thing in our personal lives. When you go through something, that's difficult together, you end up growing closer with each other. And I think that can be the case in organizations such as law firms. Absolutely. And, and if you don't want to look at that, okay, look at the numbers. The cost of the cost of law firms because of lost work productivity and possibly malpractice is not insignificant when you have lawyers who are struggling. So that's, I mean, right. if you want to look at the numbers, look at the numbers. Right. Absolutely. So tell me then, how can a law firm reach out to you? Tell me about your website. Tell me about some of the books you've written and some of the other resources that you have out there that can help people. Well, the most recent book I've written, The Addicted Lawyer, Tells of the Bars, Booze, Ball, Redemption, is the one that obviously uh, is making the rounds within the legal community. And so that, that, that's my most recent one, and that can be uh, obtained on Amazon. So that, and then, uh, you can contact me at my website, through my website, or just at Brian with an I, at briancuban.com. My website, www.briancuban.com. You can see all the places I've spoken. You can see video of me speaking. I write a column uh, on Above the Law that I cross-post on my website uh, weekly and bi-weekly, where I write on these mental health issues and stigma issues within the legal profession. So pretty much anything you could want to know about me is on my website. I'm very active on Twitter at B Cuban, so you can you can uh, connect with me there. Mm-hmm. I'm also on. This is great. So I'm very easy to get a hold of. I'm very accessible. I will anyone who's struggling. I don't care if it's a partner, an associate, support people. They all they email me. I, I'll talk to anyone about how I can help and what insight I can give. Thank you so much, Brian. Your message is critically important. I hope that those people that are listening to this can share this with their colleagues and reach out to you for your resources. And I hope to have you on the show again. And I'm looking forward to staying in touch with you in the future, Brian. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'd love to come on again in the future. Take care. That sounds great, Brian. 
Thanks for joining me. And if you have ideas or recommendations for this podcast, please email me at scott at attorneysearchgroup.com. For more information about the Attorney Search Group and the services I offer as a sports agent for partners who want to find a better platform, visit me on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.